We are currently in a series called Acts to the Ends of the Earth. We're traversing through the book of Acts. So if you would join me in chapter 2 of the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Bible in the pew back in front of you. You can grab that Bible. That Bible is a gift to you if you don't have one. If you don't know where the book of Acts is, you can turn to page 909. The title of today's sermon is called The Coming of the Holy Spirit. Last week we talked about the preparation of the Holy Spirit. We looked at the tail end of chapter 1 and we evaluated and discussed how the apostles prepared for the coming of the Holy Spirit. When we get to chapter 2, we see the promise fulfilled. Christ promised the disciples, the apostles, at his ascension, that he was going to send his Holy Spirit. Chapter 2 is a demonstration, once again, of God's faithful promise to his people. We'll be evaluating the first 13 verses. But before we get there, I think it's important for us to understand where have we been? Not only in the book of Acts, but in God's redemptive history. We know since the beginning of Genesis that God has always designed men and women to be and live in harmony with him. To be in close covenant relationship with him. He would abide among his people. We will obey, submit, follow, and live in harmony with each other and with him. Unfortunately, sin corrupted that design. Adam and Eve sinned, therefore we sinned with them. And it changed our relationship with God. It changed how we view God. It changed how we view each other. And we see constantly from the beginning that man has tried to corrupt distort God's plan for us. We see that in Adam and Eve. We also see that during Noah's time. God sends a flood to cleanse the earth because he couldn't find a group of people who weren't wicked. He finds one person and his family. It's Noah. He saves them and destroys the entire world. He starts a new human race through Noah and his family. And he has a mandate, a mandate that comes from Genesis chapter 1. He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. He tells that same mandate to Noah, multiply, fill the earth. God wanted us to scatter throughout the earth as part of his kingdom, as part of his people. And here's what we know. That we get to chapter 11 in Genesis. You guys all know this story, I'm sure. Genesis chapter 11. God had already commanded Noah and his descendants to be fruitful and to multiply and subdue the earth, fill it, scatter, be a people in the earth that I have given you. Genesis chapter 11, in fact, is a reversal or a disobedience to that mandate. What do the people do in Genesis chapter 11? You know the story. It's the Tower of Babel. 
at the Tower of Babel. All the people on earth decided, we want to stay together. We want to live together. So we're going to build a city. When we build a city, we're going to build a giant tower. In those days, um, what they wanted to do was to ascend to the heavens. They wanted to ascend to the heavens. This is what they say in Genesis chapter 11. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick of stone and butte men for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops to the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What we see in this passage is a complete defiance of God's mandate to be fruitful, to, be mul- to multiply, and fill the earth. This act of obedience wasn't that they were building a city, because we'll see later on in Genesis, um, if you read Genesis, that people built cities, and God didn't destroy those cities. Their disobedience was that the, their motive for building the city and the tower was for selfish gain. They wanted their own glory. They have um, some artistic renderings of this passage, and it's really a tower, right, that's like a spiral that you can walk or ride across, I mean, uh, above the tower, and um, the tower was meant so that the people can go be with God. They can ascend with God. Also, if they wanted to make him come down, they wanted to be like God. The disobedience, their act of disobedience, wasn't to build the city, but it was their motive. They wanted to make a name for themselves. That is the, the sin of pride. It's also the sin of idolatry. They wanted self-glory. They wanted self-idolatry. They wanted to be worshipped. They wanted to be considered equal with God. So what does God do? God comes down at the Tower of Babel, and he looks at what they're doing, and he, and he says, I have to deal with this. So verse 7 says in Genesis chapter 11, I'll read it for you. He says, come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from all over the face of the earth and they were left off building the city. God sees their sin and he comes down and he scatters them. He makes them do what he wanted them to do, but this time he comes in judgment. He comes down to judge them, and he says, I will make you scatter, but I will also curse you. The curse is that I will make you speak different languages, and people who spoke this language were over here, some over here, some over here, and they couldn't communicate with each other, so they dispersed. The curse of Babel is... Multi-languages. But if you look at the redemptive story of God, especially in the Old Testament, you have to ask yourself, right? If, if you don't know anything about the New Testament, you have to ask yourself, what is God going to do to these people? I mean, they don't get it. We don't get it. 
Sin has corrupted the way we think, the way we feel, how we act, how we treat each other, how we treat God, how we view God, and God is left standing there saying, what am I going to do? Well, we know what he does. So what's the path forward? How is God going to redeem our sin? How is God going to redeem the mess that we find ourselves in? Well, the New Testament tells us he's going to do it by saving us through his son. So God does. He saves his people, people who are called by God. And then after the work of the cross, he doesn't abandon his people. He actually provides them his spirit. You can't do life without me, so I'm gonna send my spirit who's going to be with you in you, indwell in you, and he will convict you, he will lead you, he will guide you. He will do the ministry of salvation through conviction, guidance, leading us back to Jesus, reminding us of the cross, reminding us of the resurrection. That is the job of the Holy Spirit. He would give us fruit, empower us for ministry. And that's what we see in Acts chapter 2. We see another demonstration of God's redeeming power in Acts chapter 2. So come with me there. Acts chapter 2. Since Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, all people have been scattered throughout the known world, living under various nations and communicating through multiple languages. And Acts chapter 2 is going to show us how God is going to redeem people in those nations with multiple languages. Another side note, this is the first century. It's the day of Pentecost, as Luke is going to describe in verse 1. The first century Jews are celebrating the Feast of Weeks, or what the New Testament calls the day of Pentecost. It's a one-day celebration at the end of the grain harvest. It was a pilgrim festival as well. People all over the world would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast, thanking God giving them offerings, thanking them for the harvest, thanking them for what they have received through the grain. And Luke is going to tell us that on this day, something supernatural happens. What happens? Let's look at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were staying, sitting. And, they div and the divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speaking in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? 
Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judah, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Philthgra, Pathmelia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belong to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome. Verse 11, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they were filled with new wine. The day of Pentecost, here in the first 13 verses, for us, when we see this, we know that God spiritually is reaping a harvest. What is he doing? He is filling his people, the disciples and the apostles, the 120 in the upper room, with his spirit. What God is doing in this moment, he is introducing the birth of the church. Remember, he tells them at the ascension, John baptized with, um, with water, but I will baptize you with fire. This is the birth of the church where God will send his spirit, his Holy Spirit will abide in every single believer, starting with the disciples and apostles in the upper room. This is the beginning of the church. The beginning of the church of which you and I are part of. And what we also see on the day of Pentecost in the upper room that was witnessed by a crowd are three supernatural signs. Three supernatural signs take place that we see in the first couple of verses. The first one is a sound of a mighty rushing wind. Does it mean that there was wind? It means there was a sound, there was a noise. And what Luke is describing here are the events that took place. He's describing with words a supernatural event. The second supernatural sign that he describes is that that wind or that sound that sounded like a wind filled the entire house. Filled it that even people noticed that there was a noise in the house. What we also see is tongues of fire that appeared and rested on those 120 disciples, a supernatural sign. And what we also see in conjunction with these three supernatural signs is that they spoke in other tongues. For one, I think it's important for us to mention that these supernatural signs point to power. What God is demonstrating in this passage, what Luke is describing is God's power. He is describing to us God's power to use, to implement supernatural elements at any occurrence to demonstrate that he is in control and that he is sovereign over all those elements. What we see in this passage is a demonstration of his power. 
What we also see is that the Holy Spirit who will dwell in the apostles and the 120 will receive power. They will receive power to do the work of ministry. They will receive power to do what God has called them to do, which is to scatter, fill the earth, expand his kingdom by preaching the work of Christ to all nations, to all languages, testifying of the work of Christ on the cross. What we also see is not only God's great power through the work of the Spirit, but we also see a demonstration of his presence. Remember, what Luke is drawing our attention to are the elements that we see in the Old Testament. Think about it. When God appeared to Moses, how did he appear to Moses? A burning bush. When God appeared in Exodus 19 to his people at Mount Sinai so that he can talk to them and give them the law, he appeared to them, and what they say is they saw lightning, thunder, thick cloud came down from the mountain. When the people walked through the wilderness, what followed them? A pillar and a rock. When Elijah calls down from heaven, what does he call down? Fire that consumes 50, 50 soldiers. When Ezekiel has a vision, what does he see? He sees wind and fire. What Luke is drawing our attention to, he's pulling from Old Testament passages, elements that would point to the presence of God. And in Acts chapter 2, we see that these supernatural signs point to not only his power, but also to his presence. And we also see in verse 4, the results of that presence and that power. Verse 4 tells us that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave utterances. Four provides us the results of those supernatural events, the results of that presence and that power. Two things happened to the disciples as a result of the arrival of the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit. The verb filled here describes an endowment of power. It means that God is going to give them the ability through his spirit to do things for the work of ministry. And this principle is also very true for us, that when we are commissioned by God, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you submitted to his lordship and kingship, you have the Holy Spirit at your conversion, and then the Holy Spirit fills you up, meaning he empowers you to do the work of service. That's why we're able to go reach the five outreach partners. We're able to go to Vietnam, Cambodia, Mexico, uh, Mozambique, why? Because the Holy Spirit gives us power to do these things. Now here's what we have to understand. That what happened to them was unique to them. Not the filling, but the speaking of tongues. I want to give you some points about the filling of the Holy Spirit. One, we know that the filling of the Holy Spirit empowers us for life and for ministry. 
And this happens all throughout our Christian walk. And it's also repeated. It's continual. But here's what's not the speaking of tongues. Many people will read this passage and will say that the evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit requires us to speak a tongue, a language, whether it points to 1 Corinthians in, in chapter 12 through 14 or it points to a literal language. And I'm here to tell you that the events that happen here, the work of the Spirit, right, in this occasion was unique and sudden and should not be expected for today. You should not expect that if you're being filled for the work of ministry by the Holy Spirit, that you have to speak a tongue. That's not what the Bible is prescribing here. The principle of being filled by the Spirit is something that we can extrapolate from this passage and apply it to us because we actually see it mentioned several other times in the New Testament. What we don't see in other parts of the New Testament in Paul's letters or the other apostles is that the filling of the Spirit is evidence with speaking of tongues. So what is happening here? Luke is describing this unique occurrence in which there's a physical evidence of their filling that is only for them and them only. We get the filling of the Spirit, but it's not in conjunction with other tongues. Secondly, some other people might interpret the tongues here to be ambiguous, to say that speaking of tongues is a uh, static language or um, it's some sort of a heavenly language that we can't understand and then we need interpretation. That's not what Luke is describing here because guess what we see in the subsequent verses? What does Luke say in the passage in the in subsequent passages, he says that the crowd said, aren't these Galileans? Why are they speaking our language? He's telling us that the tongues that they spoke were legitimate languages. They were spoken on the day of Pentecost. They were recognizable languages in the first century. There weren't um, a heavenly language as some people might describe the people who witnessed the supernatural events heard in their own language the testimony of the work of Christ by the apostles. So for us, we know that though we are filled with the Spirit, does it mean that it coincides with speaking in tongues? They were filled with the Spirit just as us. What about the witness of the crowd? Notice the people who are present as they're witnessing the work of the Spirit, as they're witnessing the evidence of the Spirit working in the apostles and disciples. Verse 6 says they were bewildered because they were hearing in their own languages. And in, verse, in the subsequent verses, we see that there are regions, there are cities, and there are nations that are represented as they're witnessing the filling of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Spirit in the apostles and in the disciples. Notice what God is doing. He's bringing all the nations back in this passage to witness the coming of the Holy Spirit. God coming down from heaven through his Spirit among his people, and what are they doing? They are proclaiming the gospel in their languages, the language that God created back at the Tower of Babel. 
what we see here at the day of Pentecost is that God is redeeming the curse at Babel. Remember, at the Tower of Babel, he scatters them and gives them languages. What God is doing in the book of Acts, he's bringing them back. And he's proclaiming the work of Christ in their languages that they understand. I want to give you some thoughts about how God is redeeming the curse at Babel. At Babel, the people wanted one location to make a name for themselves. They wanted to ascend in the tower to be with God. But what we see at Pentecost is the people will proclaim God's name to the ends of the earth. Instead of wanting to be like God, they're going to be used by God to proclaim God's message to the ends of the earth. What we see at the Tower of Babel is that God comes down in judgment and he curses them. But at Pentecost, God comes down in blessing through his Holy Spirit. At Babel, God confuses their languages. He gives them multiple languages. You know, many of us here today, we, we celebrate multiculturalism and, and multi-languages, and those things are great. But remember, those things were not part of God's original design. In fact, multiple languages is a curse God's original design was that we would all be together under his kingdom, under his reign, and that we would have one language. The curse at Babel is that there are multiple languages. And what we see at Pentecost is that God brings clarity in the languages. Because remember, in Genesis 11, God confuses them by the languages. And in Acts chapter 2, God brings clarity in the languages. What we also see at Pentecost, right, is that God unifies his people into one church, whereas at the Tower of Babel, God scatters all people. This is a beautiful story of God's redemptive history that since Genesis all the way to Revelation, God is undoing what sin and death had corrupted. What you and I have messed up, what you and I have done in God's history, God is redeeming time and time again. What's new here is now that God is going to be with his people. He's going to testify of the work of his son through the Holy Spirit. We won't need a temple to worship God. Why? Because God will be in us, among us, where we can worship him wherever we're at. The events at Babel have been redeemed by the work of Christ and the testimony of the Holy Spirit. At Babel, and for us too, we were self-sufficient relying on our abilities. They were relying on their abilities. And at Pentecost, we're going to see that God not only redeems Babel, but he also demonstrates our need for him. And the people of God are going to be totally dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit. Where at Babel, they were prideful and wanted to ascend to be like God. We'll see that God is going to give us, by his Spirit, humility so that we, in return, can be dependent on God. What we also see at Babel, and it's true for us this morning, is that we enjoy self-idolatry. They wanted to be worshipped. And now that the Holy Spirit has come down at 
the day of Pentecost, we will worship the triune God. God's people will worship him in spirit and in truth. Why? Because his spirit abides in all his people. The coming of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our life turns our self-sufficiency into dependence, our selfish pride into humility, our idolatry into true worship. This passage for us this morning in Acts chapter 2, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, should make us feel grateful and gratitude towards God that our sin... Our actions do not impede, are not obstacles of God's redeeming power. There's nothing that you can do to obstruct God's will. There's nothing that you can do to be an obstacle against God. God is going to redeem the very things that we decided to mess up. So as you evaluate this passage, you should be encouraged. You should be grateful that your sin is not contingent on God's faithfulness. Your sin, you cannot outsin God. We join with the people at the Tower of Babel in our sinful desire, desire to make a name for ourselves in God and his redeeming power undoes the curse of sin and death in our life and puts his name in us so that we return can glorify him. The also beauty of the day of Pentecost is not only that God is redeeming the effects of the curse at the Tower of Babel. The beauty of Acts chapter two is that it's the birth of the church. It's you and I who are part of the church. Not a building, not a building project, not a location, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, are part of a group of people who are called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are the church, and this points to the birth of the church. Do you remember the day that you were born into the church? Do you remember the day when God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, and you became a member of God's church. I remember the day I grew up in church. My father and mother, my parents and my family, um, faithful believers in Christ. I grew up in the church. I intellectually knew who God was. I was aware of who God, I can tell you the Bible stories, man, I was, I knew it all, but for some reason, what I knew about God didn't necessarily connect with, with my heart. I was around 18 years old, and it was a Sunday morning. I had to go to church. It wasn't an option for me not to go to church. For you parents out there, um, it wasn't an option. I went, there was, okay, side note. There was a couple of times where I told my dad, I said, hey, I'm not going to church today. And my dad said, oh, okay. And I knew once he said that, <laughs> I was going to church. <laughs> That's all he said. Uh-huh, okay. You know, go, stay home. I knew. <laughs> Ran upstairs. I got dressed. I put on that shirt and pants. <laughs> Ran downstairs. Anyway, it was a Sunday morning. I was sitting in the back pew because I was a good Christian. 
back pew. Now, the church I grew up in, it was a three-hour service. So I am very comfortable being in a church service for three hours. And in the church I grew up in, I mean, it, the song, there could have been five songs, and the songs were 10, 15 minutes long. And sometimes the chorus kept going and going and going and going, and sometimes things happened. Sometimes it just kept going. This one Sunday, my 18 years old, maybe I just graduated high school or I was about to or I was in college. No, it was that year. Sitting in the back pew, and they sang this song, and they kept singing it over and over again. And they kept singing this chorus or this bridge, whatever you call it, verse, I don't know. They kept singing this part. And I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon the cross. And they kept singing that part. And I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon the cross. And they kept repeating it. The more they repeated it, the more my mind began to think about its ramifications. And in that moment, it was just me and God. And then I began to cry. I began to cry because, because in that moment, I realized what that verse was saying. The verse was for me. Not me in a prideful way, but like the song they were singing was telling me, showing me the work of Christ on the cross. The spirit of the living God in that moment was tugging at my heart and telling me the, what that meant. And in that moment, my mind understood what it meant, but it finally connected with my heart that I was just crying. And I'm an ugly crier, by the way. I was just crying. And, and there's something in me. I just, in that, I just wanted to be with God. You ever like are so desperate that you just want to be with him and that no matter where you're at, like, there's this like hunger in you to just get close. And I didn't know how to do that, right? So the only thing I knew how to do was move. So I moved out of the pew and I walked down the aisle, not because there was an invitation, not because that meant anything. It's just because in my heart, I wanted to be near him. And the song they were singing was in front of me and I just wanted to get closer and closer. So I get closer and closer and then the music gets louder because as you get closer, you hear it. And then in that moment, I knelt down and I cried and I cried and I said, Finally, I said it. I actually said these words. I said, God, I give up. I give up. In that moment, my heart had surrendered to God. In fact, this is what I truly believe. Since the day I was born, God has been wooing me to that very moment. Can you think about that for your own life? That since the day you were born, God had put people, he put situations, obstacles, hurdles, grief, anxiety, fear. He allowed all those things to happen so that in that moment, you would submit to God's lordship and kingship. And that's what happened to me. I can think about all the times in my past, the sins that I've committed, the people that I've hurt, how God had redeemed all those things. In that moment, he saved me from myself. Did you hear what I said? He saved me from myself. And that was the day that I was born into the church where his spirit came down.
his spirit indwelled me. And now I'm part of the church. Are you part of the church? If you are, can you think about the day that he saved you? Sometimes I wish I can go back to that moment because it was like euphoric. It was just, it was supernatural. It made me feel love in ways that I've never felt before. It made me feel wanted in ways that I've never felt before. It made me feel confident in ways that I never was before, knowing that his spirit was in me and that there was nothing from that point on that I can do to interrupt. There's nothing I could have done to have changed God's plan for me. And that's what we see in the book of Acts. In chapter 2, God reverses the curse of sin and death at the Tower of Babel inaugurates a new covenant with his people and the birth of the church begins that you and I are now beneficiaries of the events of Acts chapter 2. How should that make you feel this morning? Do you feel more grateful this morning knowing that God is redeeming all the effects of sin and death in the Old Testament? Does it make you feel grateful in this morning that God is redeeming all your past mistakes, that he uses those very things to point to you that you need him more than he needs you, and that he's gracious enough to give you his spirit, to empower you, to embolden you, to good works, and to sanctification? How beautiful it is that Acts chapter 2 is a testimony of God's faithfulness to his people and encouragement for us this morning that he continues to be faithful. Just as he was faithful to me on that Sunday morning when I finally realized the work of the cross by the Holy Spirit, by the way, this morning we should be encouraged. We should feel grateful that God is redeeming all things. And if you really want to wake out, go read the book of Revelation Because Acts chapter 2, it's a small glimpse of what he will do where every nation, every tribe, and every tongue will come together to see the resurrected king. And one day you and I who are in the church get to see him face to face. One people group, the church, one language. Amen? Let's pray. God, we will never know how much it cost to see our sin upon the cross. But God, though we don't know, we're grateful. We're grateful that you reverse the, the, the sin and death in our life by giving us your spirit. Thank you, Father God, that you continue to work in our lives. And thank you that Acts chapter 2 is a demonstration once again of how awesome and great and powerful you are. Thank you that one day we will see you face to face, a reality of our faith, a reality of what we believe in, Acts chapter 2. Thank you for your spirit that abides in us, that leads us and guides us. And thank you for the church. 
Thank you, God, that you have birthed us all into the church by calling us out of darkness into your marvelous light and that we will be forever with you one day. Nothing can separate us from you. No sin we can commit that would ever separate us from your love, from your grace, and from your mercy. And most importantly, from your spirit. Thank you for your spirit. Remind us this week of how faithful you are. Point to the places and areas in our life, God, where, where your spirit is redeeming for the glory of your son Jesus and the testimony of the work of Christ. We pray this in Christ's name and the people of God say, there'll be pastors down up front to pray with you, to pray for you. We'll see you next week. This has been a message from the chapel. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about the chapel or any of our campuses, including Akron, Green, Wadsworth, Kenmore, Cuyahoga Falls, Nordonia, and Medina, please go to our website at thechapel.life.